Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. My guest today is psychiatrist Dr. Kent Robertshaw, a world-renowned expert in addiction. I'm your host, Jan Jaffe. Welcome to In-Depth. Kent Robertshaw graduated summa cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania, where he double majored in biology and psychology. He's a graduate of Cornell Medical School, where he received a special award for his research into the mind-body connection. He continues his connections with Columbia Medical School by teaching courses on substance abuse. He has over 20 years of expertise working in substance abuse. And as an expert in addiction, he has appeared on numerous television shows. His most important TV appearance was when he was a featured guest on the Oprah Winfrey Show discussing whether alcoholics can learn to drink moderately. He's appeared on CNN several times discussing topics including Michael Jackson's substance abuse as well as the rise of prescription drug abuse. Dr. Robert Shaw appeared on Geraldo discussing alcohol and the holidays and was also interviewed on News Talk discussing the medical use of marijuana. He has also appeared several times on radio shows throughout the country. Most consistently, he has been featured over 20 times on the radio show The Positive Mind. He's been quoted in numerous magazines and newspaper articles. Dr. Robert Shaw has extended his expertise in addiction to include many different kinds of compulsive behavior other than alcoholism and substance abuse. This has included love addiction, sex addiction, food addiction, work addiction, etc. Using an innovative treatment approach, he has helped hundreds of clients stop compulsive destructive behavior who have failed other treatment modalities. He has an eclectic approach to psychiatry with expertise in various forms of therapy as well as psychopharmacology. Dr. Robert Shaw also believes in a whole-body approach to treating individuals with a sensitivity to mind-body connection, meditation, exercise, nutrition. He has a special interest in treatment of individuals in the performing arts. Dr. Robert Shaw was associated with the world-famous Juilliard School for many years. He has worked as an expert consultant on plays performed in New York, including High Life, featuring five-time Obie Award-winning actor David Greenspan. I'm delighted to have Dr. Kent Robertshaw as my guest on today's show. Welcome, Dr. Robertshaw. So lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. The number here is 646-716-9397. We welcome your calls, questions, comments, and contribution to the discussion. We would love to hear from you. The number again is 646-716-9397. So, Dr. Robert Shaw, there's so much I want to cover today, so I'd like to cover a few things quickly before we get into the meat of this interview. So, first of all, is opiate use a relatively new phenomenon, or has opiate use or opioids uh, been going on for hundreds of years? Yeah, I mean, the uh, lotus eaters from... uh from uh, the Iliad, I mean, it has been known for centuries, if not longer, that poppy and opium uh, is something that helps with pain and controls pain. So 
healers of all types, but certainly in the last hundred or so years, uh, doctors, physicians, dentists have known very well that opiates are the best way to deal with uh, pain, pain of surgery, pain of dental work, or pain due to an injury or pain uh, due to some illness. So for, again, hundreds and hundreds of years, the connection between pain and opiates has been very well known by the medical profession. I see. So then, um, well, I've been, there are a couple of other questions. So why has there been such a radical change then in the prescribing of opiates in the last 20 years? Yeah, I, you know, and if everyone in the audience, just to, to, to point that out, that, again, that for most of the 20th century, there's been a sort of a guidelines about opiates and pain and what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, and uh, how it's used. And, uh, again, with maybe some notable exceptions of, like, famous people like Elvis Presley, who was able to get the opiates from a a bad doctor or whatever. Obviously, that's always existed. But there was certainly a, a kind of understanding about pain and opiates and the appropriate use of opiates and various kinds of pain syndromes. Um, and what's been clear that in the last 20 or some years, there's been an enormous increase in the number of prescriptions for opiates. So no one thinks there's more people in pain, there's not more accidents or surgeries or anything, that it has to be that doctors in the last 20 or so years are prescribing narcotics for pain syndromes that was not done in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. As the identical patient with the same problem would not have been prescribed narcotics. There's been a shift within the medical pr- profession of a more liberal sort of prescribing for uh, pain syndromes, particularly chronic pain. You know, chronic pain, back, neck, stomach, headaches, and the like, uh, of people, you know, younger, you know, under 65, under 50. Uh, and that's really been the big increase in, in the number of prescriptions is people uh, who have chronic pain syndromes and doctors, pain specialist doctors, prescribing narcotics ongoing for a chronic pain syndrome. Mm. And. And that's what's shifted. And now, you know, why there's been a shift within the medical profession is not clear. I think there were some, you know, research and articles that came out that said that it's helpful for chronic pain. Uh, Because, again, one of the ideas about why you don't give narcotics for chronic pain is because your body becomes quickly used to the narcotics. So one of the things that's guided people for centuries up until I went to medical school in the 80s and whatever was the idea that you shouldn't give people narcotics long-term because of the problem of tolerance. The body quickly becomes tolerant to the narcotic and it stops working after weeks or months so that you don't want to give it for chronic pain. You want to give it just for acute pain or or an accident or something like that Uh, because chronic pain, um, it'll stop working. And the only way to get a narcotic to start, start working again once your body has become tolerant to it is to increase the dose. And that was always the fear for centuries, which is that people would then need higher and higher doses of narcotics if they have a chronic pain syndrome. 
Right. And then, of course, it can become, uh, at a certain dose, it can become lethal. Absolutely. uh, Right. And then, of course, they have been, that's why I guess they have been developing newer and newer um, opioids that are much stronger and then, I guess, more, uh, in some ways, more dangerous, if if we can use that word, um, yeah, but, I think, I, and I, but I think again, I, you know, I use the metaphor of like alcohol again. If, you know, like, like scotch is stronger than beer, but if you take enough beers, it'll do the same thing. I mean, alcohol mm-hmm. is alcohol, in some way, opiates are opiates, right? They're, they're they're opiate receptors. So the truth is, you know, if you get a hold of a lot of ten milligram Percocets, you know, it'll mm-hmm it'll do the trick, right? I mean, you know, and people then, like Prince and people like that, we're taking 20, 30, 40 pills a day uh, wow. of narcotics, right? So, again, stronger, I, I, again, it's just uh, stronger. They're all, they all work the same way. So you can use many of the narcotics that have been around for years, and all you need to do is just take more of them, and it will have the same effect. I see. So why does the U.S., prescribed so much more than other countries. Why? I mean, I, I believe the uh, the number is 85% of the world opiates. Is that correct? That's correct. So, again, up and until... And why is that? Yeah, up until the 80s or 90s, again, we were in line with many other countries of the norm of other countries about how we treat pain. And, again, what is just absolutely factually true is that the United States has gone off the bell-shaped curve of European, Russian, Chinese doctors in terms of a freedom of prescribing for chronic pain. We seem to be the only country really to think it's safe to do and that it's effective for chronic pain. That, That being the two things that sort of came out in the 90s by certain doctors, uh, uh, research and the like. And it, it seems to me, from, to answer your question, I think a, a, a handful of doctors in the 90s seem to be partly responsible for the entire field sort of signing on and drinking the Kool-Aid of, oh, it is okay to take it long-term. And, yes, mm-hmm. there's tolerance to it, but it still works pretty well. And, yes, you know, people aren't going to run into trouble with the overdosing and diversion of giving to friends and the like. They take it responsibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have problems with addiction of misusing it and the like. So that's my sense because uh, a lot of times people will they'll blame the pharmaceutical company, which mm-hmm. never makes sense to me since it seems like it's always been in the pharmaceutical company's vested interest for hundreds of years to have a lot of prescriptions to make a lot of money, whatever. So I think it's really been certain doctors or that that really had a profound influence on everyone's thinking, you know, for a while. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, then, you know, general doctors, again, in 19... have a specific, a doctor in 1998 who had a 37-year-old who has chronic pain was starting to prescribe painkillers, you know, every month. 
something that wouldn't have been done in 1988, 1978, 1968, and isn't done in other parts of the world. You know, so the many doctors were then signing on to the idea that it's safe to do, it helps people, it helps their pain, it helps their quality of life, and it's not going to cause much trouble to the patient or tr- trouble to society. Mm-hmm. I see. I, you know, I'm curious. Um, these pain centers, you know, they, that they'll have that they have in in either hospitals or whatever. When did those come about? Well, again, I think that's really been the last 20 years that this whole mm-hmm. pain, and also, you know, a lot of pain doctors come from anesthesiology, right? So a lot uh. of of you know, again, as you can imagine, going to an anesthesiologist for chronic back pain, you know, somebody like me would say, well, what does an anesthesiologist know about the physiology of the back, right? I mean, the, right. what's causing the pain, right? You know, it's, uh, uh, and it's almost a kind of hopelessness about that we're never going to fix the pain. Right. I mean, that's mm-hmm. also been the other idea, which is that we're going to get to the root of what's causing the pain, like uh, a cavity with a dentist. Right. I mean, you know, you're, right. you go to you're in pain where you have a toothache, and there's an idea that dentist is going to like f- fix the cavity and cure the problem that's causing the pain, as opposed to a sort of hopelessness that I believe happens when people go to pain clinics where there is a feeling of like, we can't fix your back. We can't fix your neck. We can't fix your side. We can't fix 35, 45, 55 year old. We're not going to be able to fix what's causing the pain. It's not fixable. And there's nothing you can do and we can do. Mm -hmm. Right. No, no, I'm just going to say, but sometimes you're told that you need to have surgery to fix something. Um, And, you know that that's not always the answer either, because um, sometimes you can't fix, but you can do things yourself to bring down inflammation in your body. Because um, you know, you know, you you're obviously very involved in the mind-body connection, and if there's things that you can do naturally to bring down inflammation, to bring down pain in your body, I mean, those are things to investigate too. And by going to a pain center, you're cutting off that possibility. Um, yeah, I think that I think that. To make it, you know, to sort of be a firebrand psychiatrist <laughs> here. And, you know, what became true is that doctors are human beings, obviously, and doctors have their own self interest mm-hmm. to do something that benefits them financially, right? I'm not saying they do right. this maliciously, but as you, you, the audience can understand that. When a doctor prescribes narcotics to somebody, a young person, then the person has to come back every month or so, and the doctor gets paid, often by insurance or Medicaid or Medicare. You know, I don't want to sound like Mm -hmm. conservative, but trust me, there's like lots of money of our tax dollars going towards people, doctors and narcotics of people that as you're bringing up alternative treatments of chronic pain that don't involve the two things and the two only things that doctors have. We have a scalpel and we have a prescription Mm -hmm. pad. And Mm -hmm. lots of chronic pain isn't 
in that kind of, and it's not necessarily psychosomatic and psychological mm-hmm. for Dr. Robertshaw, right? A lot of people right. need to go to physical therapy. They need to right. do biofeedback, hypnosis, acupuncture, stuff like that. Those mm-hmm. are the mechanical treatments of what are mm-hmm. often mechanical problems in their back and neck and the like. But that takes a lot of work, right? I mean, it takes a right. lot of, you know, perspiration right. and, you know, sort of stretching and strengthening and things like that. It's, Whereas right. it's, it's, not, tempting, it's not a magic pill. A magic pill or a magic right. surgery. Right, you know? right. And, you know, another thing I just wanted to bring up, too, was that is it possible, or ask you, is it is it possible, and maybe I am, well, I, is it possible that, um, the the rise in this country of the use of opioids is or the prescri- prescribing of opioids for con- for chronic pain is due to um, the way you know it's covered by insurance. I mean, you've already brought this up too, but I've been yeah. wondering is you know is it's that it's easier for insurance and it, it, insurance it will pay for it. It's cheaper to pay for that than than visit to the to a physical therapist. Absolutely. You know, just pay for a uh, drug prescription. So it's not about really how safe is this for the patient, but what is m- most economically feasible. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, I'm surprised insurance companies who have their own interest to make money, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. doctors and like pharmaceutical you would think that they would have their own interest in trying to get people to things that are maybe in the short term more expensive, physical therapy and the like, that in the long term, as you know, may help them save money, right? If somebody is right. mm-hmm. having, again, you know, when you're on chronic pain medication, then you need a prescription paid for every month and you need a doctor's mm-hmm. visit every month where very little happens from what I understand. I mean, my my, mm-hmm. my patients who come to me to get <clears> off <throat> it will say, you know, they show up in a minute or two, maybe not even spent with the doctor. How's your pain? How's everything? Whatever. Oh, here's your prescription for Oxycontin, Percocets, you know, 90 pills, 120 pills, and I will see you next month. You know, it's a real, like, uh, mill of just come in, exactly. no evaluation, no real in-depth uh, sort of discussion about what you're doing alternatively or otherwise to help with the pain. Just here's your script. Uh, you're not selling them on the streets. You're not misusing them. Thank you very much. Walk out the door, and, and that's it. And obviously you talk about pain centers. There's notorious places in Florida and the like where it's clear that it's you know it's a it's a whole industry of mm-hmm. people who come from Oklahoma and other states where it, it you know you can just come down there come down there with a friend and your friend says they have a backache and you say you have a backache and you walk out of there with you know 120 pills each of you know very yummy narcotics you know to get you high or to sell. Mm. Oh gosh, <sighs> that's that's just awful, isn't it? Um, and it's not being regulated. I mean, well, um, I, I'm I'm just curious. Why can some people take opiates as prescribed and not abuse them or become addicted, and others become hooked? Is there a genetic component of some sort? Well, 
you know, again, I I think there's there's and again, this was sort of what they were talking about in the '90s and the like, which is what they were saying is just because somebody's on painkillers and they're taking them responsibly, they are dependent on it. Meaning, they are dependent in the sense that everybody, all mammals, all people. Lynn, you know, Jan, Kent, Robert Shaw, if we took pain meds over time, it would stop working as well, Mm -hmm. and we would develop tolerance to it, right? It would affect us Mm -hmm. less. And and then it would also show the other thing, that within a couple of months, we couldn't stop cold turkey, whatever dose it Mm -hmm. is. If we wanted to stop Mm -hmm. after six months, we would exhibit withdrawal from opiates, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of people would say, well, okay, it, it shows characteristics of becoming tolerant to the opiate and having withdrawal from the opiate, but that's not addiction. That's not hurting their life. That's not a problem, even though they're physically addicted to the opiates. Um, The problem being when people want higher and higher doses and Mm -hmm. go doctor shopping to get multiple prescriptions or go across state lines to get prescriptions and the like, to, again, the famous, you know, overdoses of Prince and Michael Jackson at all, you know, and obviously there's hundreds and hundreds of cases over the last year where people are taking, you know, extraordinarily high doses of these narcotic, these pills. And the question, I guess, is, you know, why is it that some people with chronic pain stay to a a certain dosage of their pain medication and don't escalate the dose? And why are there other people that seem to, you know, quickly, you know, every month or so need more pain medication? And there's probably genetic differences in terms of people, Mm -hmm. you know, responding, becoming more euphoric. And then clearly where I come in is there's a lot of psychological and psychiatric sorts of underpinnings about why people are using their pain medication to deal with anger, frustration, boredom, Mm -hmm. all sorts of emotions. Because these painkillers, they make all pain go away, emotional pain as well. Ah, yes. And I've I've read articles as well about that um, that psychic pain, emotional pain, um, can also it, it affects the pain centers in the body. So that as I I'd never thought about it this way, but that 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 kind of pain can actually cause physical pain. So perhaps it is affect, affecting their emotional pain. You know, like you said, it makes all pain go away. Um, oh yeah, I find I mean- it. You know, Freud, you know, cut his teeth, right, on, you know, pain and hysteria and Mm. the body manifesting symptoms for emotional problems. And there's no question a lot of people who feel psychic emotional pain, I believe, right, manifest they're not able to access their emotions and feelings to know what causes pain, but they they have a need to communicate to the world they're in pain. And so, Mm -hmm. yes, because they're they're troubled and and, and psychic pain of of a way that they can't connect with, become in touch with, talk about in therapy, get resolution from, they communicate, I'm in pain, with 
physical symptoms. My stomach hurts, my head hurts, my back hurts or something. To communicate to people, I'm in pain. And clearly psychiatrists and psychotherapists would say a lot of good is done at times when people can connect to what really is hurting emotionally. So you Mm -hmm. don't have to use physical pain to communicate to people you're in pain, which is really what some bodily manifestations of pain is probably about. So that's very interesting. So not only because I think most of us think, well, people get high from these drugs, but it's also that it's it's dulling just the pain of their lives rather than just physical pain. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, and I think... And I think I've read studies that, again, a lot of people, if they're honest, of the you know the enormous number of Americans who get chronic pain medication, studies would show that a lot of people will admit that they took one of their pain medication not because they're in pain, because mm-hmm. uh, something stressful or you know living in New York City with subways that are stalled or something <laughs> like that, you know, something very emotionally upsetting happened, and clearly, mm-hmm. like other substances of abuse, they do work magically to make you feel better, like like Johnny Walker and Scotch and cocaine and cannabis. All these things are really mm-hmm. magical ways to deal with emotional pain, and they work. <laughs> You know, that's why there's so many addicts, right? They, they they actually work. They calm you down. So, you know, I'm curious, though, because you brought up addiction and, t- and tolerance, and I, I was wondering, that was one of the things I was wondering about, was the addiction versus tolerance. And um, the drugs prescribed that create tolerance, such as benzodiazepines and sleep right. meds, you know, and so don't physicians and you know i'm not putting you in this in this group <laughs> but don't physicians add to the problem by creating dependent users by prescribing drugs to their patients that create tolerance just you know um you, that when you look at the description then those little fold out sheets sure. that we all get that we throw away and never look at when we get a a, a drug <laughs> from our a medication sure. and it says do not prescribe for more than 2 weeks um, and you know the doctor will give it, and it, and we get prescription after prescription, and um, it's not like a sleep med that you're not supposed to take more than a few times, say, or something like that. And people will find themselves suddenly, you know, having having built up a tolerance, and it's and then you actually go through a withdrawal. So how is that different from addiction? Uh, right. It, it, it is, you know, again, addiction implying, again, I guess, taking extra or, you know, taking more than prescribed, uh, misusing the medication in that way, taking more than than prescribed for anxiety. All the different categories you talked about, and you're spot on, right? There are many prescription medications that doctors are prescribing that, over, it is known that that Ambien, which helped you sleep on night number one, on mm-hmm. night number 150, is one-eighth as effective as it was night number one. And that Xanax you took, because you have to do a radio show with Jan Jaffe and calm your nerves down, uh, <laughs> you know, that really made you relaxed and calm, 
you know, after a hundred and some days of taking Xanax before a radio show, it's not working anymore. It's not calming you mm-hmm. down. Now you've got to take two to get that same initial effect. Mm. So, you know, it's, it is true that doctors know that many of these medications, particularly tranquilizers, sleeping pills, and painkillers, that once you put somebody on them for months, that it's working much less effectively than when you started. And even darker, they're now hooked, meaning mm-hmm. it's not easy to now come off once they've mm-hmm. been on these things for months and months. It's very difficult to get off. Uh, there's often a withdrawal, a long protracted withdrawal that we know with tranquilizers and painkillers once people are on them for six months, a year, or plus, that it's, it's, as I'm sure many people in your audience know personally, it is not easy to come off these medications that your body has become tolerant to. It takes mm-hmm. weeks or months to do it. So then what, what is the difference then between, I, I mean, because it, uh, cause if, you're, if you are, say, um, it, say it's sleep meds or... Or it is benzodiazepines or something. So you need, if you're if you've created a tolerance, so then you need more of it. What? How does that differ from addiction? Well, uh, yeah, I guess I guess in theory, right? You you need more. I guess w- within the idea that you're not like within your prescription, within your prescription, you're not taking extra, getting friends or something like that. But to your point, <laughs> it's like over time with the doctor, colluding with the doctor and the pharmaceutical company, mm-hmm. you are needing more, right? Over time, mm-hmm. you're saying, oh, my sleeping's not good anymore, or my anxiety is coming back, mm-hmm. or my pain is getting back. And then because it's the medical profession and it's a doctor, it's like, okay, well, let's give you three pills now uh, mm-hmm. the second year you've mm-hmm. been on that, right? And, yes, that would be, you know, uh, you're increasing the dose, you're increasing... Uh, the tolerance, all the above, and people like me would say, like, yes, you're now having a kind of opiate addiction or painkiller addiction or uh, tranquilizer addiction, maybe slightly different than somebody who's just, you know, taking five and going to a party (laughs) on a Friday night, right? I mean, that's that's a different kind of addiction that happens all over the place. But Mm -hmm. it's still, you know, people who are taking something that's now, you know, they got a monkey on their back, right? Meaning it's now right. very hard to come off, and they're pretty reliant on it. Right. It's a dependence, and it it almost sounds as though one is, you know, is is within the, you know, the the lines of being prescribed by a doctor, and with a doctor's okay, sure. uh, and oh, with a doctor's oversight versus you know, outside of that world or, right. uh, you know, or doing it, you know, going to a party. <laughs> right. Um, and I'll th- again, you know, just, to, just to talk about doctors, you know, my colleagues, and mm-hmm. I'm one of them, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of evidence that when doctors feel there are people looking at their prescriptions more closely, mm-hmm. they prescribe differently. And meaning, mm-hmm. so again, you would think like, oh, everybody, Marcus Welby, everybody, everyone's <laughs> perception of a doctor is they're smart and thoughtful and above all do no harm. 
right, as mm-hmm. their motto, right? That's what the oath we take, above all, do no harm. They're not going to do anything hurtful or something like that, or they're not just out to get money for their Hamptons house or something like that, right? <laughs> you know, everyone's, or some people may have a more realistic or cynical view of doctors, again, being people who, you know, have their own interest to have patients come back and have patients be prescribed medications that, um, you know, benefits them to be hooked on because they need to see them on a regular basis. And one of the things that brought this aspect home to me about doctors and prescribing is in New York State, once upon a time, we were the only state in the country that went, not to talk complicated stuff, but, you know, you can, once upon a time, you could use a regular prescription pad for a benzodiazepam, a tranquilizer like Valium, Xanax, all the above, right? You can just use a regular pad, which isn't controlled or monitored very well. New York State was the only state, I believe about 14, 15 years ago, that then introduced that you have to put that prescription now on what was called a triplicate form at the time, which was the Mm -hmm. form that you use for pain meds and other things that were more highly controlled and the like. And what happened in New York State after the year they introduced that is the number of prescriptions went down by half. Right. Wow. So the, the the same amount of people were anxious and having insomnia and all the above. I'm going to pick a year, and I don't know what year it was, but I'm going to pull it out of the air. I should know it. 2001. So nothing's changed, right? Mm-hmm. Anxiety and insomnia didn't go away, but New York State doctors, knowing mm-hmm. that they're going to be looked at and monitored about how they're prescribing their tranquilizers, prescribed half as many prescriptions the following year which shows that, you know, a lot of it is very subjective about mm-hmm. what doctors do with these these things, even though they know about the problems of addiction and the like. Um, you know, some part of me feels, to answer your question about America, and maybe people will disagree with me, but I, I say to liberals and conservatives, you know, I think we live in a country where we allow guns and we're now legalizing pot. Now, that seems to go on both sides of the political spectrum, right, of freedom. But it Mm -hmm. may be true that America, right or wrong, has a very libertarian view, which is I know there's problems with guns, I know there's problems people are going to have with pot or prescription meds, but it's not our job to regulate it necessarily, right? It's America. You're, you know, if you, most people can take guns responsibly. Most people can smoke pot responsibly or whatever. And so... You know, why punish all the people who enjoy their guns and enjoy whatever for the X percentage of people that run into troubles? And that's partly also why I think we live in a country that has, you know, freedoms of things that other countries sort of act parentis locus. They don't allow guns. They don't allow prescriptions, you know, opiates and the like. And clearly, you know, prescribing marijuana is, the United States is very much an outlier in 2017 of what is normal uh, because of lots of other countries' concerns about what's going to happen when legalization of marijuana. 
But clearly mm. also, I think even with prescribing opiates, you know, it could be like, oh, 90-some percent of people, it helps their pain, they become tolerant, they have to come every month, but it's not causing real problem. Where, yes, you know, there are this massive increase of overdoses that have occurred because of these prescription meds, and many of these prescription meds are making their way to the children in the household. And at 15, mm. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, there is a lot more kids in high school and college on a Friday, Saturday night with their beer now taking a Xanax or a narcotic or a painkiller with their beer because they're in their parents' households and whatever. They're, they find them or whatever. They're, it's easy to just take a couple out and use them and misuse them and give them to your friends. And that's a very scary idea as well, which is that now there's you know a whole generation of high school, college people who are being introduced to popping pills to get high. Mm. Wow, uh, that is kind of a scary thought. Although, I mean, I... Gosh, I remember years and years ago people were doing downers and things, but I don't right. think it was probably as dangerous as, as what you're describing. I want to remind everybody here that we'd love to hear from you. The number here is 646-716-9397. And before I get to um, our, uh, our – we, uh, we have a wonderful sponsor here – and um, actually, I just I do want to mention that here on the Life Coach Radio Networks, we're proud to have as our sponsor Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet, offering customers a new way to enhance and enrich their lives every day. Audible is the preeminent provider of spoken word audio products that include more than 100,000 audio programs from more than 1,800 content providers. Receive a free audiobook with your 30-day trial when you sign up with Audible today at audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. That's audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. Now here are some Audible books related to today's topic. Shame and Guilt, Masters of Disguise by Jane Middleton Mose. The Power of Right Believing, Seven Keys to Freedom from Fear, Guilt, and Addiction by Joseph Prince, and Emotional First Aid, Practical Strategies for Treating Failure, Rejection, Guilt, and, uh, and Other Everyday Psychological Injuries, written and narrated by Guy Winch, Ph.D. So don't forget to sign up for a one-month free trial to get your free audiobook today at audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. Audible, stories that surround you. And now back to our show. So I just wanted to ask you again, um, getting back to what you were talking about, Dr. Robert Shaw, what would you say is um, I know this is kind of a ballpark figure, but what would you say is the percentage of people who use opiates or opioids who actually become addicted or abuse them? Uh, I would say 5%, mm-hmm. so, me- meaning misuse them and mm-hmm. need higher and higher doses again. Uh, and within that, you know, are even just going to one doctor, 
but you know again some of these doctors in these pain clinics you know it's just remarkable that they're prescribing you know just an enormous amount of pain meds to somebody mm-hmm. uh who is effectively being able to go in every few months whether it's malingering or manipulative or not and say the pain's not working and I need more pain meds after a couple of months, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and then, then get a higher and higher prescription, and uh, uh, and then obviously the much, you know, the, the the more common sort of thing would be people going to different doctors and getting different right. prescriptions. There's another well, way I mean, to get these high doses. Right. Right. Doctor uh, shopping. Doctor shopping and the like. Right. And, that's and not going say, for. And it, mm-hmm. Sorry. Go. Go on. Well, again. And again, over you know, again, when people see all these prescription overdoses and everything like that, again, it's it is not true when they when they look where these pills are coming from, right? They're not coming from labs like in people's bathroom, like crystal meth labs, right? It's not being <laughs> made illegally, so these pills aren't being made illegally of all this opiate addiction across America, and it's not necessarily the pharmacies. That are you know uh, you know some some jar drops out of the back of a van to a pharmacy or something like that. So again, <laughs> the pills are coming from doctors' prescription pads to patients, and then some mm-hmm. many patients, right, quote unquote patients, don't take a single of the pill, right? It's all a scam, mm-hmm. right? Like I mentioned before, mm-hmm. they walk out of the office with oh. 120, 150 painkillers that are mm-hmm. street value now $30 a pill, and they sell them. They divert them. They, they sell them on the streets, or they sell them to people who sell them. So there's a lot of, you know, misuse of uh, doctors and prescriptions getting over on doctors to, for people to make money and to sell pills and to sell pills to people who then need more and more. They get a prescription from the doctor, but then they need some from the street. You know, they need some from a drug dealer to to get a higher dose. Oh boy. Um you know, I it's interesting that you that you say all of this because um you know, I'm well because of an experience I had, I you know, I want to know first of all, what sort of regulations are there for pain doctors so that there aren't pill mills either masquerading as pain centers or pain centers transforming into pill mills. And I ask this because of an experience I had where I was referred to the head of a pain center at a major hospital here in New York City uh, for a steroid injection. Um, I was just supposed to have this steroid injection. Um, and in this office, the, the office, when I went in to this pain center to get this injection, the office receptionist handed me this, you know, these forms that you have to fill out, and it was pages and pages and it was pages as i started looking to fill it out you know your name and your address and some questions then it was all this stuff all the these these questions and and information about opioids and you know how i would be how about storing them not giving them to others how i would be refused further prescriptions if i discovered that i gave or sold my pills to others etc 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 so i you know i looked at this i thought oh, this there has to be some mistake so i went back to the receptionist receptionist i stated to her there's got there must be some misunderstanding i was not i didn't come to the office for pain pills but I came merely, I was there for a steroid injection. I'd been referred to that office by my doctor for a steroid rejection. She said, no, 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 no mistake. Everyone who comes here fills out these forms. 
And I have to say, when I looked around the office, it did that some of the, the patients who were sitting there looked a little bit questionable. Um, yeah. You know, I don't mean to make a judgment, but they did look a little questionable. And so when I got in to see the doctor, he did uh, his, you know, he looked at my MRIs, and then he did his very best to convince me against the injection and to go on opioids. I go on flatly opioids. Re- yep. I flatly refused. I was furious and very upset, and as I left, you know, he said, well, you're not, you know, this, I, I, he wasn't going to give me an injection on that visit. And as I left, the receptionist asked, oh, so do, do you want to make another appointment to come in and get the, come back and get the steroid injection? And I said, you know, there was no way I was coming back to that, that office or that doctor ever because I felt it was a pill mill. It was like a revolving do- door pill mill. And so what I feel, and you can hear, you know, I'm very passionately, you know, I still get upset about the way this was was run and the way this this office uh, exists, and that if this is the head, if this doctor was the head of the pain center at a major hospital in a major U.S. city, how is our government dealing with this? How do they handle this? How can this exist? I won't mention the hospital. Obviously, it's New York City, but he is the head of this pain center at this major hospital. How does how can this be allowed? How does this go on? Well, again, it's the it's the medical profession. I mean, you 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 hit it right there, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the medical profession has to police itself. I mean, I'm only I mean, you know, again, we 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 doctors, I believe, are not doing enough to you know to, you know, get other doctors to either, you know, change the, you know, liberal treatment of painkillers to other people uh, for chronic pain or, you know, to sort of get doctors in trouble that we hear about are, you know, too liberally prescribing, you know, per per Kent Robertshaw, right? I mean, obviously other doctors Mm -hmm. disagree with me and think that everything's fine, right, that a lot of people are happier because of all these prescriptions of narcotics and the like, you know, that it's helped their pain, that they're happier in their lives, that they're not... Um, they're not uh, as troubled uh, uh, and distracted with their pain being on the chronic n- narcotics they're on, right? So I'm just telling you my view, mm. which is, of course, which is, I think, um, yes, it's very self-serving of these doctors. And more yeah. importantly, I think that over time, again, when, when – and what Jen obviously is so sort of saying, which you got to, you know, believe, which is – in t- no other time period before 1990 was it conceivable, I, and I don't even know what Jan's talking about, but I'm going to shoot from the hip, that it's inconceivable that a doctor would have said, put you on narcotics. Because in my mm-hmm. training and the like, mm-hmm. to keep it very real and honest for everybody, the only chronic narcotics were people with metastatic cancer and cancers mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. were going to most likely kill you within a few years, and then, in a very, you know, right sense, I think people feel the pain. The pain is going to get worse because the cancer mm-hmm. is going to get worse, and 
the person's going to live for only a couple of years. So, yes, mm-hmm. the patient is going to develop tolerance, but who cares, right? I mean, we want to make them comfortable, whatever. And the underlying problem, the cancer is getting worse. It's getting bigger. So their pain right. is actually going to be getting worse in an objective way. Right. Again, whatever Jan has or what a lot of people, it's quite the opposite, right? It's like, well, whatever this is wrong with you, isn't necessarily getting worse, right? It's it's not like right. glowing, like whatever whatever it is. No. Your back got twisted, whatever it is for most people. And then secondly, you know, Jan's going to live another forty years. So you're <laughs> signing this. When Jan walks out of your office with this prescription, you could be signing her on to forty years or more of being on narcotics because once she's well, on them, it's going to be very hard to get off. Oh, he wanted, yeah, he wanted another somebody else, another addict on his roster. I hate to say that, you know. And right. and P.S. I never got, I never had the injection. I just right. never did. I just went and found, you know, I did my research and found out how to reduce inflammation in my body. And I tend to, I coach people on that now, how right. to how to reduce pain. Anyway, we won't we won't go into that. I'm um, I just want to remind people that Dr. Robert Shaw would love to answer any questions you have. We'd love to hear from you. The number here is six four six seven one six nine three nine seven. I you know if, I have a question for you, Dr. Robert Shaw, which may be may. Sound, make me sound a little skeptical, but I'm very curious about this. If people can give up or stop using a substance via, say, a 12-step program, mm-hmm. then is it truly a disease? I mean, cancer, heart disease, epilepsy. One cannot apply 12-step method- methodology here. And yes, withdrawal is hell. But there is choice involved where there is none in, say, epilepsy or cancer. So why, then, is addiction labeled a disease? Well, I think um, once the brain has been addicted, once the brain (laughs) has been addicted to a substance, um, George Bush alcohol, you know, (laughs) one-third of the population tobacco, Many people, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Prince, Michael Jackson, et al., narcotics, right? Mm-hmm. Once that's happened, then my viewpoint, and you mentioned my Oprah show about alcohol, mm-hmm. my viewpoint mm-hmm. is that now, like 12-step programs, you have to be sober. I mean, you have to have no mm-hmm. cigarettes, right? Former cigarette smoker. You have to have no cigarettes, or if you're a chronic opiate addict, you can have pain meds every once in a while when needed for severe dental work or, or you get hit by a car or something like that. But mm-hmm. it has to be extremely monitored and extremely well controlled and looked at because, um, and I, you know, all these things, it's sort of like the brain is such that Moderate use, recreational use is no longer an option, that one has to be sober. And I think, again, I think the term disease would be that's that state of that brain that if you 
have a drink, George Bush or maybe Donald Trump's brother or, you know, 10 million alcoholics, <laughs> there's lots of them. You know, if mm-hmm. you have a drink, then something happens out of your control. And what I say to people is addiction is not a relapsing disease, right? It's a disease you have every day of your life, right? And to Jan's point, and I couldn't agree more, a person decides to have a cigarette after not having one for years or have a drink at a wedding after not drinking for three years, alcohol, whatever, and that's a choice. That's not your disease relapsing, like multiple sclerosis and, uh, you know, uh, lupus and lots of diseases that happen out of your control. It's a person choosing to do a substance. And then what I would say is once that person makes that choice to do the substance after knowing they have the disease of a certain addiction, then their disease takes over. Then statistically they're out of control. Right. They're 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 off to the races, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's where, and I think disease also implies that there's some genetic component, mm-hmm. and I think it's very important for people to believe it's a disease because what does it mean? There's something wrong with me. I'm weak-willed. Why can't I have a drink and yet my cousin can? And all the the, the other thing would be, well, how do you explain to people? Well, why why is it? You can't have a drink if you're an alcoholic. If it's not a disease, is it an indicative that I have poor willpower or that I'm more neurotic than other people? If those are why I'm telling myself I can't drink moderately, that's very shameful. And the end goal will be to try to drink moderately or try to smoke moderately, God help us, or whatever. If that's why I tell myself I need to stay sober away from this substance, so I think even that aspect of a, a disease label or whatever is also a non-shaming way of mm-hmm. describing what people need to do, whereas I think a lot of people have very shaming reasons in their own mind or other people have mm-hmm. very shameful, judgmental reasons about why you can't have a painkiller every once in a while, whereas other people can do it recreationally and obviously with alcohol being the, 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 the biggest mm-hmm. example of why can't you be normal and just have a drink every once in a while, like 85% of the population. Mm-hmm. So I think that disease is very important for people to feel at peace in their own head, that there's nothing wrong, bad, or morally wrong with them about why they can't drink normally. There's something that's happened to their brain that's not fixable, as I say. You know, or, you know Once a cucumber goes to a pickle, that you can't be a cucumber again, right? Once, once <laughs> the evidence would suggest that once your brain has become addicted to cigarettes mm-hmm. or alcohol or opiates, there's mm-hmm. not a going back to moderate. That's what the evidence suggests. Right. Ah. So it, it also. I mean, I love that. I love that image that you just that you just put out there. But also, it is. It's a. It's a very um, good way to um, to psychologically. Um, get oneself out of shame mode, which can keep one from, you know, just staying stuck right. and and actually going deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole, and basically get get give somebody some some a little bit of pride or hope and get them hopefully to move into action 
and um, maybe to, to to get into maybe taking some action towards self care, and basically being being able to get away for it. It takes a lot of work to get out of addiction to go yeah, through and recovery. It, and it is you know again I like to say to people you know that addiction is probably the third leading cause of death in America. It's either third or fourth. You know it's mm. way up there, right? Addiction. Not even mm-hmm. I'm not even going to use food addiction and obesity, which is actually I, I believe in, right? But just alcohol, the simple, alcohol and cigarettes, right? It is thought mm-hmm. to be the number three, number four cause of death in America. And with those, that cause of death, sobriety, it's 100% treatable, right, with sobriety, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, unlike if... Darwin or God gave you the cancer card or the heart disease cause. There's lots of other things that, you know, you can be cursed with that isn't so treatable even in 2017 that will kill you. Mm -hmm. You know, addiction is such that Michael Jackson and Prince and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Heath Ledger could all be alive today if they got sober and stayed sober. That's absolutely true. Um, You know, there was... Um, we're, we're getting, we're running out of time, but there, there was a, a show, uh, and it's funny because I cannot find it anywhere on the internet. And I think it was Ernie Anastos who was hosting it. It was mm-hmm. some special documentary about um, addiction and how it be, got labeled as a disease, and that it was basically the insurance industry. Mm-hmm. Who, that labeled it, got it labeled as a disease so that it was covered by insurance. Now, I don't know if this is true. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very interesting show. Um, but before well, thank that... God it's covered it, by insurance. <laughs> <laughs> but that, <laughs> but before it was labeled a, um, a disease, it was not covered by insurance. And yeah. that that was basically the, the underlying reason, the motivation for getting it co- uh, called and labeled a disease, um, but I I loved I've never heard the the reasoning behind it um, so beautifully explained as what the way you just explained um, how you know choice versus what happens after someone has made the choice to then have that cigarette again or have that drink or take that pill, what then happens and how the addiction, the disease then comes back into play. I, I, there's just one more thing. I mean, there's so many, so many more questions I have, and we may go a few minutes over. Is that okay with you, oh, of course. Dr. Robert Shaw? Okay. Um, I really do want to talk, talk a little bit about medical marijuana. Um, the Epilepsy Foundation has been working very hard to get it passed and available since studies have found it to be far more effective than many of the anticonvulsants on the market today without the de- it has it's it does not have the debilitating side effects um especially for children that so many of the anticonvulsants have on the market i mean the anticonvulsants um so many of the drugs on the market um right now make make life for children especially um but also for adults almost impossible um, and so many people have intractable seizures um, so that they can't function or life is very dangerous or they have um, multiple uh, brain injuries. So they're trying very, very hard to get medical marijuana passed. And I believe it has been passed in New York State, but yet there are still no, it's still impossible to get it. 
because there are no um, dispensaries or no growers. So it is, it's still very, very difficult to get. There, there's still laws they're trying to get passed, um, and it's still a very touchy thing. It's, and it's so, you know, it's so very helpful for cancer patients in alleviating nausea and increasing appetite. I mean, I was just, I just lost somebody very close to me, um, and I was um, his caretaker. And thank goodness he had, um, he had access. To marijuana, and because it helped him so much uh, in his last days, just because the nausea was so bad. Um, so I'm curious, what is your experience regarding marijuana as a psychiatrist, not just as a physician, but as a psychiatrist? Because I know, um, especially with the, the 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 younger brain, you know, if you're dealing with teenagers. Um, the developing brain. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts regarding marijuana and medical marijuana? Well, you know, despite being phenomenally liberal socially and, uh, you know, protested the Iraq War or whatever, much <laughs> to my many friends' horror, I tend to be fairly conservative about marijuana in the sense mm-hmm. that the active ingredient for marijuana THC has mm-hmm. been available in pill form for 20 years, the active mm-hmm. ingredient. And those of us in the field and those of us in medicine have always wondered that if seizures and marijuana are very complicated, so that's a third rail, because mm-hmm. some research does not suggest it's as great a, a, a treatment. But Wasting away syndrome of AIDS and cancer, unbelievably good for appetite. You get the munchies. Hello, we've all been there. Uh, been there, done that, have the T-shirt to show it, right? I mean, you, it increases appetite, right? So without a doubt, you know, THC, the active ingredient of marijuana, is very helpful for people going, undergoing chemo with, with cancer, uh, AIDS, whatever, where it's very important for people to have uh, their appetite increase because otherwise they're gonna they're gonna start starving and the like. Now, where I for years and currently butt heads with people is there's no other thing in medicine where the active ingredient of something isn't extracted and then you know made in a pharmaceutical. For example, opiates, right? We don't have mm-hmm. people who go to a dentist's office, smoke opium, you know, go to an opium den mm-hmm. and smoke it in a leaf form. They have the active ingredient, the opiate, in a pill form. They mm-hmm. have that in cannabis. And Dr. Robert Shaw has prescribed THC, who's pretty conservative about substances, but I prescribe Marinol to people with cancer, mm-hmm. and I think it's done wonders for them. Now, mm-hmm. why we would want them to be smoking mm-hmm. cannabis with hundreds and thousands of other chemicals in there rather than in a safe pill form take the active ingredient uh, is astounding to me. I don't quite understand. I know people try to try to say it works faster if you smoke, but I could say that about opiate. I could say it about lots of other, you know what I mean? Like there's lots of 
chemicals that we doctors use that are found in plants, right? You know, like uh, anti-arrhythmic medications and stuff like that. And, yes, mm-hmm. you could smoke a leaf if you have arrhythmias of your chest. You could smoke this plant if you're going in for dental it's There's nothing different about it, right? There's active ingredients in plants that medicine has found been found to be very helpful. Why is this one and only active ingredient people pushing to have medical marijuana, and again, if people mm-hmm. go back 20 years when I used to debate this on whatever, to the head of normal, and it's come to be, well, it's to get the, na- the camel's nose under the tent to get marijuana legalized, <laughs> which everyone now knows is actually happening. Cam- <laughs> I love your, the camel's nose under the tent. Actually, uh, two questions come to mind from this. First of all, I'm I'm wondering why then did, does the the oncologist do not prescribe the the THC pills or the Marinol pills whatever it's called they they did not they they weren't prescribing that because that would have been perfect um, I don't they know. were not I, pres- to, I don't I'd know why they them. don't do that yeah That's this ridiculous. was Sloan why they a lot of colleagues that I have at uh, Cornell and Columbia prescribe Marinol quite a bit, so I. I that's a yeah, very this good is Sloan Kettering. They, yeah. I, I don't understand that. That's why they don't. I don't. And as far as I know, with with um, the the uh, the the epilepsy center, at least at NYU, that is very active in the Epilepsy Foundation. Um, they they are it's CBD oil, the cannabid. Can, cannabidiol, I think it's called. Can, mm-hmm. um, that's what they're talking about. With uh, that, that is very effective. Um, that they they use like just a drop on on the tongue for children, and I guess for adults too. Maybe two drops. They're not they're not um, promoting smoking marijuana. Um, it's this oil, and that's a, it. Supposedly does not get anybody high. So. Um, this is this is what they're trying to to make available and and get passed so um it's just very hard to to get these things you know people want to be able to get this out there and get it available um medically so i don't know maybe what you're talking about is different than what that what what i'm aware of um well again, what I, i'm just i'm just not clear that the American neurological it's good this is good radio because we're disagreeing but uh, here we go I'm not clear I'm not sure it's clear <laughs> that neurologists in 2017 the I mean if they all the American neurological society mm-hmm. said this is the greatest thing since sliced bread it's like penicillin for whatever I, I would assume there would be an avalanche of like marinol or these oils or whatever I think that there's still you know, you got to be careful with what medicine and research and whatever, because like just what I said before about opiates, 1998, 1999, I was one of the very few people up at Columbia who was, you know, wary of some of this research that was going on. I'm telling you, I was like a dinosaur, you know, like, oh, you know, <laughs> did you read this study, that study? So, again, I've been around enough to know this, a couple of studies and a couple of people advocating something is in medicine, right? Medicine has got to be 
science, right? There has to be many, many different centers, many different doctors, many different countries have got to replicate something. So just because, you know, a couple of doctors have found this to be a whatever, that that means nothing in medicine in a sense that they could be wrong, like as, as I said about chronic pain, right? There were a couple of doctors mm-hmm. in New York in particular whose research now, 20 years later, a lot of people say that, that they were wrong, that, and, they, and yet they had a, a couple of papers affected a whole group of people uh, prescribing. So I think, again, I'm, and you might be right, in which case, I, again, mm-hmm. I, every, every physician like myself who wants to help people, if it's true, this cannabinoid oil doesn't make people high and it helps children with epilepsy better than known prescription medication, of course. I mean, we're all on board. But my spidey sense, if if that was such a slam dunk, that would be happening by now. So something's more complicated. Other people disagree. Other people aren't sure. Other researchers don't find the evidence of cannabinoid and seizures as much as other ones. It's, there's still controversy in the field, in which case there needs to be mm. more research. That's my well, guess. This is, this is the Epilepsy Foundation, and they're trying to get more. It's just because there, has, there, there just hasn't been enough research, apparently, for uh, epilepsy research, and they're, um, they're, they're also working to get more funding um, f- for, the, uh, for, epile- for research for epilepsy research uh, at the NIH. Um, so there's a lot of, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that now, but, um, you know, I'll send you some information about this. <laughs> um, but um, and there's if it's the a, active ingredient THC, then why an, ex- an extract from a plant with hundreds of chemicals in it why why not just give the THC? That, that's what I don't know. And I, I, I yeah, I don't think, I've never read that it's the THC. Um, so uh, it will be interesting to find out. Um, the the doctor who's actually head of all of this is Oren Davinsky. So um, you might find that interesting. Um, but anyway, to get back to our show, um, let me just, um, I, I'm just one. I've just another question. I have so many questions. I'm just curious. We mentioned patients who doctor shop, right. and um, you know uh, uh, there are patients that do. Depending on on their mental state, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there are patients that you know they'll fake syndromes. Uh, they'll doctor shop and fake syndromes all the way to the point of actually uh, seeking surgeries. You know of. Sure. Uh, doing research and seeking surgeries to get opioid prescriptions um, and until they can maybe come up with a syndrome that will um, like CRPS for example um, and, and 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 so they can get a that's a you know for the audience who doesn't know that's a chronic pain syndrome um, a legitimate chronic pain syndrome that that requires long-term or forever, basic, basically, uh, opioid prescriptions, and um, so basically, how does the medical field deal with these patients? I, you know, is it you know, well, <laughs> you know, either they have illegitimate their... diagnoses, or you know, how do, how do they deal with these patients? Is there a way? 
No, you got to be very savvy, right? I mean, and if the doctor's spending 45 seconds as you, your experience, whatever, I mean, you know, you got to be very, very savvy and suspicious or something like that. I mean, I think a lot of doctors don't like to be, like, I would say, like a good accountant. To use this metaphor, mm-hmm. a good accountant, right? I run a couple of pizza shops here in New York, and I made $70,000 last year. Now, trust me, a lot of accountants will be, that's great, I'll fill out your taxes, right? But a good accountant should be like, hmm, that's weird. Uh, aren't you you're getting a lot of cash you're not telling me about or something like that, you know? But then that's adversarial. Then you walk out the door. I'll get another accountant, right, you know? I, I, I own ten pages, pizza shops, and I make seventy. I make seventy thousand dollars a year. Like, do your job and do my taxes, right? So, an ethical, thoughtful accountant, or an accountant yeah. that's worried they're going to be scrutinized, if there's that kind of scrutiny. But mm-hmm. a many accountant would be like, I didn't do anything wrong. The guy came in with ten pizza places, and he said he made seventy thousand dollars a year. And I, I whatever, I, I looked at his receipts and whatever, whatever. I, I, I didn't ask about cash. He didn't tell me about cash. I, I don't know if he's lying. What am I going to call my client a liar? And trust me, mm-hmm. a lot of doctors, you know, that's what, that's very uncomfortable for doctors to do. Very uncomfortable addiction right. in general to probe mm-hmm. about alcohol use or drug use or mm-hmm. whatever. A lot of a lot of physicians want to be liked and they want to be, you know, uh, helpful. And I'm asking questions that are, are annoying you, you know, implying mm-hmm. that I drink too much or I'm misusing my pills and, and that's annoying me. And I'll go to another doctor that won't ask those questions. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a... As I yeah. tell medical students, you know, diagnosing addiction, you know, patients are happy to say this is what hurts and this is my thyroid or whatever. And often doctors, to identify addiction and the like, they have to be in the uncomfortable position of asking their patients questions that are going to make their patients uncomfortable, particularly if they're an addict, right? Particularly if they're an yeah. addict. Mm-hmm. And doctors mm-hmm. aren't used to doing that. That's not comfortable for them. As I try to teach the students, I say that's essential, right? If you, if you want to be a good physician and you want to make this diagnosis, you have to be comfortable asking difficult questions and maybe even saying, I, I think I want to talk to your wife because your liver is a little swollen here and you say you only have one or two drinks and, geez, Louise, mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know, maybe I should talk to somebody else. So what can we do if we find that we have either a friend or a family member that we realize is an addict? How do we handle this? I mean, they may they may seem like they have, you know, a, a normal, a relatively normal life, you know, and I'm using the word relatively, but we realize that they are using and uh, we're concerned. What can we do about this? How do we handle uh, that? It's a good question. I mean, um, there's very little anybody can do, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of Al-Anon. I mean, you could try to talk to the person and see if they think they have a problem or, you know, talk, talk you know, d- directly bring it up and get the elephant out of the room and and say, you know, because I do think, as you're saying, family members, right, these people, Prince, Michael Jackson, all these people, Heath Ledger, trust me, 
when they have an appointment with Dr. Robert Shaw at one twelve in the afternoon, they are pretty sober when they come into the doctor's office. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're they're not stupid, mm-hmm. right? They're coming in bright eyed, a little bit of pain, whatever like that. And it's the family members at seven thirty at night that are seeing them kind of conked out, right? You know, like mm-hmm. stoned or asleep when they should be parenting or something like that. So, again, many it's absolutely true that family members and friends, particularly family members, they're, they're the ones that are seeing some of the negative consequences of the addiction. The doctors, the nurses, or whatever, they can't read minds. And if the patient lies or the patient is in denial and doesn't want to admit that I fall asleep at 7.30 every night in my pasta, my face in pasta, and I, I can't take care of my kids because I'm on my fifth painkiller. Um, there's nothing a doctor can do, right, because they can't mm-hmm. read minds or whatever like that, unless a family member comes in. And what I would say to people, confidentiality means I, a doctor, cannot say anything to you, family member. And over the years, I've emphasized this to people. You, the family member, are allowed to call a doctor up and say, I know you can't say anything. I know you can't even admit that you're treating my brother or whatever, or my husband or whatever, but I just want to give you an FYI that at 7.30 at night, when we have three children, my husband falls asleep in a plate of pasta because they're misusing their pills. And so, yes, you can communicate to the doctor and help the doctor to know the truth of what's going on, not the truth the mm-hmm. patient is telling them, but the truth. And then, because mm-hmm. I think many people in the audience are like, yeah, you know, somebody I know is not doctor shopping, not whatever, but they're prescribed. They're 37 years old, and they're on five painkillers a day. And mm-hmm. I know he, so he or she sobers up and goes in and says it's working fine, whatever, but I see when they're misusing it and taking extra and, and whatever or having a drink with it and getting, you know, really wild and behaving, mm-hmm. you know, horribly. Mm-hmm. But the answer is there's very little people can do to confront or uh, help an addict uh, out. You know, as, as as they say, it's a self-diagnosing disease, and often it has to come from the person, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of saying they have a problem. Now, obviously, a lot of spouses, in particular, have to question why I aren't, why I'm not saying to them, I can't handle this. I need, I deserve better than this. And you either stop drinking a case of beer a day, or smoking pot all day long, or popping pills all day long. Or him out the door, you know. Yeah. That would be yeah. in the realm of enabling in the sense that I mm-hmm. I just allow it to happen as opposed to, unfortunately, it's a fairly blunt instrument I think most people have, which is, you know, either I tolerate this or I sort of give them an ultimatum that this mm-hmm. is intolerable. Yeah. you you got to get help or else. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Robert Shaw, I want to thank you so much. We are definitely at the end of our show. We have gone over because, I mean, we could just go on and on. You are just a fabulous guest, and I have learned so so very much. So I want to 
thank you, my guest, Dr. Robert, Dr. Kent Robert Shaw, for being on the show today. I'm Jan Jaffe, and it has been my absolute privilege to have been your host today. In addition to my solo interview show, I also host Think Tank, a roundtable discussion. I would be delighted if you would join us for the next episode of Think Tank on May 24th at 12 noon Eastern. And if you enjoyed Dr. Robert Shaw today, I'm delighted to add that he will be joining us on the Think Tank panel as a co-host, so it's an episode not to be missed. We'll be discussing the ramifications of obsessive guilt and the impact it has on our lives. So do tune in. Dr. Robert Shaw, would you care to share any closing thoughts, advice, comments, or words of wisdom with our listening audience? Well, again, we covered a lot today, but I think the the main thing is that dealing with addiction is difficult psychologically because it means dealing with the emotions and feelings that one has tried to avoid with the addictive substance and in some ways is a much harder thing to do than to pop a pill or go on to an escort service or to have a donut. I mean, it's much easier to do that. So it's a a hard thing, um, but doable. That's the hopeful message. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for being on the show today. It's been such a treat having you with us, and I want to remind everyone, oh, thank you, and I want to remind everyone that you can find contact and bio information in today's show description. Now, I'm just going to take a moment to announce a few of our upcoming shows on this, the Life Coach Radio Network on May 23rd at 8 p.m. You can't keep doing the same things and get different results. And on May 24th at 12 noon, Think Tank, 50 Shades of Self-Flagellation, Obsessive Guilt, and How It Can Paralyze Us. So thanks again to my wonderful guest, Dr. Kent Robertshaw, for joining me today and making this show a very special one. Thanks for listening. I'm Jan Jaffe for Think Tank. Tune in next time.